Before we get started today, just uh, like you to pray for one of our families at Grace, uh, the Siebenhaller family, who experienced tragedy yesterday afternoon. As a matter of fact, I'd like to stop and pray for them right now, if you join me. Father in heaven, we, we come to you with heavy hearts, and, and we pray specifically for this family, part of our church family, um, Lord, that you would strengthen them. Lord, we know we can come to you because you are not a God that's a stranger to suffering and pain, but, but have suffered suffering and pain for us. Father, we pray that you would strengthen them, Lord, help them, Lord, uh, in their time of, of grief and loss. And God, we, we pray that you would see them through and give them the strength that we know only you can give. In Christ's name we pray, amen. We were just talking last week as we finished up a series in Genesis, this explains everything, and, and we were talking about how pain and suffering came into the world as we looked at Genesis chapter 3, and, and now we're beginning a new series, Epic, and it's, it's about God's saga through time, His story, and, and really we're going to kind of pick up where we left off in a sense and just go on through the Old Testament, as Zach was saying earlier, to try to tie everything together. And um, So Genesis chapter 3 introduces, because of the sin of people, pain, suffering, and death are introduced into the world. In Genesis chapter 4, Cain kills his brother Abel. In Genesis chapter 5, uh, mankind spreads throughout the earth, but but corruption also spreads and, and people become increasingly distant from God, increasingly rebellious. And then that brings us to Genesis chapter 6. And that's where we're going to focus today, starting in verse 5. But before I read this passage, I'll just let you know that a lot of people in our day have a problem with this. And... Because their judgment is involved, and, and not only that, uh, there's the whole issue of, of the head and the heart. And actually, a lot like creation, sometimes you can't hardly talk about the passage, I feel, without answering some of the questions uh, just to get people's head a little bit clear, just so you can get to the heart of the text. So I'll be doing that again today, a little bit for the head and also for the heart. But let's start reading in Genesis chapter 6. This is the story of Noah, beginning in verse 5. Then the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great on the earth, and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord was sorry that he had made man on the earth and was grieved in his heart. And the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have, have created from the face of the land, from man to animals to creeping things and to birds of the sky, for I am sorry that I have made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. And these are the records of the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his time. Noah walked with God. Noah became the father of three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Now the earth was corrupt in the sight of God, and the earth was filled with violence. God looked down on the earth, and behold, it was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted their way upon the earth. Then God said to Noah, the end of all flesh has come before me, 
For the earth is filled with violence because of them, and behold, I am about to destroy them with the earth. Make for yourself an ark of gopher wood. You shall make the ark with rooms and shall cover it inside and out with pitch. And this is how you should make it. The length of the ark, 300 cubits, its breadth, 50 cubits, its height, 30 cubits. You shall make a window for the ark and finish it to a cubit from the top and set the door of the ark in the side of it. You shall make it with lower, second, and third decks. Behold, I, even I, am bringing the flood of water upon the earth to destroy all flesh, in which is the breath of life. From under heaven, everything that is on the earth shall perish. But I will establish, establish my covenant with you, and you shall enter the ark, you and your sons and your wife and your sons' wives, with you. And of every living thing of all flesh, you shall bring two of every kind into the ark to keep them alive with you. They shall be male and female. Of the birds after their kind and of the animals after their kind and of every creeping thing of the ground after its kind, two of every kind will come to you to keep them alive. As for you, take for yourself some of all the food which is edible and gather it to yourself and it shall be food for you and for them. Thus Noah did according to all that God had commanded him, so he did. So, so many people have an issue with a universal flood. I would like to clear a few things, uh, basically, just for our heads, and, and so we can get, wrap our minds around that. So, if you're here and you're a little more skeptical, this part is for you, for the naturalist mind. I, I just want to point out some things First of all, in, in our world, there are over 270 different cultures in the world that have this uh, ancient tradition, an ancient story of a universal flood. And as you examine all those stories, here's what you find. 95% of these 200, over 270 stories, 95% of these stories say the flood was universal. 70% say survival depended on a boat. 66% say the wickedness of man was the cause of the flood. 88% say that there was a favored family. Again, 66% say there was a remnant that was warned. 67% say animals were also saved. So although the stories vary, that's the commonality. And, but there's no shared stories in cultures about a universal fire or a universal earthquake. Just flood. Just a flood. And so um, they suggest that ancient cultures seem to have a shared ancient memory of the universal flood that changed and got corrupted through time, although the Genesis account is the fullest explanation of the flood. And then that passed down through to us. So that's one thing that you need to grapple with if your mind is skeptical about the flood. The second thing is, uh, we all know uh, that, that when you're in the mountains, you can find fossils of sea creatures. So I, many of you know, grew up near the Rockies, loved to hike in the Rockies, seen this in the Rockies, high in the mountains, fossils of, of sea animals. I've also uh, been in Nepal and in Kathmandu. I, I got this rock, and you open this rock, have it on the screen, and, and, and of course, Kathmandu's at the base of the Himalayas, the highest mountains on earth, and what do you find? 
a fossil of a sea creature in the highest mountains in the world. So if you're a skeptic, you got to grapple with that. Of course, people would say, well, the mountains were lower, or they were submerged, and they rose, and, and okay, I'm okay with all that, and all that is consistent with a universal flood. And so you just have to deal with some of those issues. Um, and if there was a universal flood, what would you expect to find? Well, we'd expect to find billions of billions of dead things that died quickly and were covered by sediment, which, by the way, is how you produce fossils, and you would find those all over the world. And what do we find? Billions of dead things that were quick, quickly died and were covered with This is why a skunk in the road doesn't become a fossil. That were covered with sediment. And we find them all, and we call that the fossil record, right? And then some people would say, well, there can't be that much water because it says even the tallest mountains were covered. Well, actually, if the mountains were a little lower, if, if we smoothed out the crust of the earth, if you smoothed it completely, the earth would be covered with water at about over a mile and a half deep. Okay, the deepest part of the ocean that we know of is about two and a half miles deep. And then you have the Himalayas and the Rockies, but if you kind of smooth it all out, the earth would be covered with water, but not just a little bit of water. Over a mile and a half deep water. And of course, we believe there, there were mountains before the flood, but maybe after the flood, they, were, uh, they rose up higher and, and same with the oceans got deeper. But the point is there's a lot of issues. There's a lot of scientific evidence. There's a lot of evidence that we see every day that points to a universal Floods, you need to, to grapple with that. Now, so that's just a little bit for the mind. And, and of course, we go into this much deeper, and I've done that before, but that's really not what, where I want to spend most of my time. But dealing with the mind, now I want to deal with the mind of not the skeptic, but the believer. Because if you're a believer here, you might be thinking, well, Kevin, I noticed you didn't start with verse 1 in chapter 6. You started with verse 5. And, and just so you don't think I'm trying to skip over, because... Verses 1 through 4 have some very interesting things in them. I want to like to backtrack a little bit and hit that because what you have there is a very interesting passage that leads up to the flood, and then there's this key interpretation that people, Christians, differ on, and I want to explain that. And it starts in Genesis 1 through 4. Now, it came about, so this is right before what we just read. Now it came about when men began to multiply on the face of the land and daughters were born to them, that the sons of God saw that the daughters of men were beautiful and they took wives for themselves, whomever they chose. Then the Lord said, my spirit shall not strive with man forever because he, is all, he also is flesh. Nevertheless, his days shall be 120 Verse 4, the Nephilim were on the earth in those days and also afterward when the sons of God came into the daughters of men and they bore children to them and those were the mighty men who were of old, men of renown. Kind of an interesting passage to stick in there, those four verses. And for Christians, and by the way, if you're kind of a skeptic and, uh, and you're not there yet, you might as well just tune out about the next three or four minutes, all right? But if you're a Christian, here's the big deal. There's two huge ways to see that, and it all is about how you interpret the phrase, sons of God. Sons of God. 
two views. One view is that the sons of God, that they're from the, the godly line of Seth from Adam and Eve, and they were the ones that were trying to follow God. And then the daughters of men represent the line of Cain, who were not following God and were rebellious. And then when they intermarried, things went south. So that's view number one, Don't, doesn't need a whole lot of explanation. But the second view, uh, and this is actually a view I kind of like, the second view is freaky. The second view is like Star Wars meets Lord of the Rings. So let me just give you a minute on this, okay? So sons of God everywhere else in the Old Testament means angels. So here, this, according to this second interpretation would be, the sons of God are fallen angels that took human form, and we know that happened in the Old Testament sometimes, and then procreated with human women, and then that produced the Nephilim, the mighty men, the men of renown, the men, the men of renown, the men of old. And that might give explanation why God's judgment was so drastic, because we already learned from Genesis chapter 3 that there was going to be a solution to the pain, suffering, and death that was introduced into the world through the woman's seed, but now the woman's seed is being threatened with corruption by intermarriage in some freaky way, and so God takes matters into his hands and deals with it. And so that's the other view, the, the kind of strange view, if you will. It doesn't really matter which view you hold for the rest of the story, but it, uh, it's very interesting. I mean, this is not boring stuff. This is stuff. You didn't see this in the flood movie, right? This is some stuff here. You're going to make a movie. Let's put that in there. All right. And by the way, you know, and some people would push back and say, well, Jesus said that angels didn't marry in heaven as he was doing some teaching. That was kind of a side note. But then other people will push back and say, well, yeah, Jesus said that normally angels don't do that. But that doesn't mean that fallen angels at one time in the past did do it. And it goes on. There's actually some New Testament verses, a couple of passages, that seem to indicate something happened there. And what they seem to indicate is that those angels that did that, that left their first estate or where they were supposed to be and did that, that as God judged the earth, that God then imprisoned those angels in a special way, fallen angels like other fallen angels are not imprisoned. And, and then we have a story about that, so I'll read that. And, and that shows up in Jude chapter 1 and 2 Peter 2. Jude 1, 6 and 7 says this, And angels who did not keep their own domain, but abandoned their proper abode, he has kept in eternal bounds under darkness for the judgment of the great day. Just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities around them, since they, in the same way as these, indulged in gross immorality and went after strange flesh. That's kind of a tough passage if you don't have that second view. Second Peter 2, 4 and 5. For God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell, committed them to pits of darkness reserved for judgment, and did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a preacher of righteousness, with seven others, when he brought the flood upon the world of the ungodly. So those passages could be referring back to chapter, Genesis chapter 6, if you have the freaky second view. But either way, no matter which view you have, the point is this. 
Mankind became increasingly evil, played out in the violence that was seen all over the earth, and then God judges. But, and, and really, and so God does that, and, and whether, whatever view that is, what we know is then Noah finds favor. God tells Noah to build an ark. It's listed in cubits. A cubit is at least 18 inches from the, a man's hand to his elbow. Could have been a little bigger, but taking the smaller size, this is an ark that's about a football and a football field and a half long, 450 feet long, 75 feet wide, 45 feet tall, with about a foot and a half window around the top edge before the roof. So that's what we have in the dimensions of the ark. By the way, these dimensions are the equivalent of uh, let me see, 522 railroad cars. Same amount of space on three decks, it's listed, that they were to build. So you, have, so you can put 522 railroad cars worth of stuff in the ark with the, with the description taken the smallest way we can uh, that was given to Noah. So it's kind of this shoebox-shaped uh, vessel. By the way, people will tell you now that that shape of a vessel is the most stable vessel that you can have. It probably didn't have a V-hole like you see uh, all the pictures. But anyway... Um, and so Adam's in here, the earth is flooded for 150 days, but it takes months after that for the water to recede. And he's in, he and his family, eight people are in the ark the whole time until they finally come out as it recedes more and more and more, uh, they're in there. But the biggest issue with the flood is not so much the mechanics for people. The biggest issue of the flood today is a heart issue, not a head issue. The biggest issue with the flood is that people struggle with how could God wipe, almost wipe out the entire human race? How could God do that? How could a loving God do that is what they would say. And that's what I want to talk about is the reality of the flood for the heart. And to understand righteous judgment, because we want a righteous judge. We want justice, but you can't have justice without judgment. So we have a righteous judge, and, and then there's actually a necessity of judgment because of the violence of man. It's that way today. We have to have judgment because we want justice because of the violence and the wrongs and the evil that mankind is capable of. So if, but just believing in divine judgment and God's love, it's kind of tough for the brain. Yeah, it's a little tough. I get that. But if you don't believe in divine judgment, you got bigger problems. If you don't believe in divine judgment, if you don't believe in a God who judges, your problems are bigger than just kind of wrestling through that I'll get back to in a moment. And here are two of them. If you don't believe in a God, if you don't, that gives divine judgment or, or God at all, then you have zero intellectual defense against the naturalness of violence. Violence is part of nature, right? Small, you know, big viruses eat small viruses. Big fish eat small fish. Nobody protests. Nobody complains. Nobody carries signs about that, right? But big nations eat little nations 
there's a problem. Big people pick on little people. We don't like that. But the problem is why? If there is no God, if that's how we got here, survival of the fittest, the big eat the small, then that's what we would expect. And that's actually the right thing because that's what got us here. If you don't believe in God, you have no intellectual defense against the naturalness of violence. If there is no God, you can't, there can't be anything wrong with violence if evolution is how we got here. You have to believe in the supernatural to even complain about violence. Does that make sense? Nietzsche, we're not talking about a Christian here, basically said that all public moral outrage is really, kind of surmising this, is really just a self-serving power play. It's the way the small attack the big. The weak attack back the strong. It's just a self-serving power play. That's Nietzsche, the guy who doesn't believe in God, but at least he admits all the ramifications of that. Second problem, you have zero emotional defense You didn't have an intellectual defense against the naturalness of violence, and you don't have an emotional defense against the poison of vengeance. You know, we have this thing when something bad happens, for every act of physical violence, there's thousands of acts of what you could call emotional violence. You know, there's thousands of acts of just wronging people in different ways. And just like physical violence bring, can bring death, uh, pain, and suffering, emotional violence, if you want to call it, brings the same thing. Characters are assassinated, dreams are killed, hopes are wiped out, relationships are blown up, self-images are destroyed. Things happen when we're wronged. We, we suffer when we're wrong. When you're, and when you're wronged, what happens? You get angry. And if you're angry long enough, you get bitter. And if nothing's being done about it because of that, you know, that anger and that bitterness in your life, we all know, you don't have to be a Christian to know this. We all know that's like poison in our lives that then we don't go on healthy. It starts destroying our lives from the inside out. Anger and the bitterness that we hold against in ourselves because of the wrong that's happened. And so people, Christians, but a lot of other people that aren't Christians will say, well, you got to forgive to get rid of that poison of vengeance and bitterness in your life. And I, I got to tell you, if you can just easily forgive, oh, I got to forgive, I'm forgiven. You haven't been violated. If forgiveness is super easy for you, then probably you haven't really been violated like some people have been violated in this world. For example, you know, we, we minister to refugees uh, from Myanmar or Burma, you know, on the Northwest Thailand border. And, and you talk to these people who have been burned out of their homes, who've had, they've been hunted down. They've had family members raped and killed. Those people and those of, and some of those being Christians 
of, of the Korean tribe that's being persecuted. Hey, forgiveness is not easy. It, it's a, a process. But as Christians, we're called on to forgive. But what helps us to be able to forgive is knowing that God has forgiven us and all that, and we've created his pain. But what helps us forgive is knowing that there is a righteous judge who will judge those people who have wronged us. That makes it, knowing there's a divine righteous judge makes it possible for us to truly forgive and let it out. And it's not just that. It's knowing that the righteous judge is not us. Because we know we don't have the power to judge. We can't see judgment through. People just say, back off. We don't have the knowledge. We don't know all the facts. We don't know what the truth is all the time. We only see our side. So we know we're not the best judge. We don't have the power. We don't have the knowledge to judge. We don't even have the right to judge because we know that we've done wrong. So knowing that there is a perfect righteous judge allows us, and it's not us, allows us to be able to forgive. If you just think about what other people in the world experience, if your family was murdered or someone in your family was raped and, and you did not think that there was any judgment, no righteous judge, well, what would happen? You would want to take up the sword. You would want to do something about it. You would want to, to extract vengeance if, if you didn't think God would. If you get rid of the idea of a divine judge, you really have absolutely no way to deal with human violence intellectually or emotionally, either way. That's the necessity of judgment for us to deal with wrong in a real world. But I think what people miss most of all in this story and just miss about God as judge is judgment and the pain of God. We read right over that, but it shows up in the story. Judgment and the pain of God. You know, some people are thinking, well, how can you believe in this God who loves, but he's just wiping out people, he's smiting them, he's cutting them down. And, and just thinking about that, because maybe you're a little more tender, which is a good thing, it just hurts your heart. You know, how could that be? And you might even find it emotionally sort of unbearable, something you don't want to think about. But if you think it's emotionally unbearable, that if you emotionally recoil at the thought of this large-scale divine judgment, think about God. He recoils at this. The text told us as much in Genesis 6, 5 and 6. Then the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great on the earth and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Next verse, the Lord was sorry that he had made man on the earth, and he was grieved in his heart. When we look at this specific Hebrew word, grieved, this is an intense emotion that God is feeling, that his heart is filled with pain. That's what that means. 
It's bitter anguish that God experiences over human sin. And, and you might ask, well, why? Why would God be feeling that way about, why would God even allow that to continue? Because when God made us, he bound up his heart with us. So God makes us and he allows us the free will to have a free relationship with him. But through Adam and Eve, we all said, no thanks. I'll be calling the shots. I'll decide what's right and wrong. Whole knowledge of the tree of good and evil we talked about last Sunday. And then God, why, is there, why isn't it just stories over right there? End of story. We're not here to read about the story because that's it. Why does history even continue? Why is there a next day? Why does God provide even outside the garden? Why is all this happening? Because God knew the cost, the suffering, and the pain that he would endure to have a relationship with us. So why did history continue? Because God was willing to experience the pain, the suffering, even the death. He was willing to absorb that in himself as he loved us and allowed us to continue and wanted relationship with us. He knit his heart with us. God is willing to suffer. So what's the solution? How does this all come together? Well, the story of Noah is not just a story about judgment. It's also a story about second chances and new life. That's what chapter 9 in Genesis is all about. When they land, finally, the water after months and months and months has receded enough that they get out. And then what happens there is, if you can imagine, they've got to be feeling super vulnerable. Everybody they know, except for the eight, are gone. And it's, uh, it's funny, because this a story of judgment, think about it. I, I'm in one of the rooms in our house yesterday. I was trying to get my youngest granddaughter to go to sleep. So I thought the best way to do that as I place her in the crib was for me to lay down on a bed that was nearby. Kind of get the idea, we're going to sleep now. Get your blank. She didn't want to sleep. But anyway, and I'm laying there waiting for her to go to sleep. And on the wall above her crib in our own house, what is there? Noah's Ark. I mean, we decorate our children's rooms that way. You know, hey, the animals and all that. But this is a story about judgment, universal judgment. God wipes out the world. Lay me down to sleep. If you die before you wake, you know, pray God my soul. Yeah, we're real comforting. You know, but we, we do this. If you think about this, why? So they got to be feeling super vulnerable. And then God reestablishes covenant with them. And he reestablishes the sanctity of human life. We see that in chapter 9, verse 6, for example. Here's, here's what he says. 
Whoever sheds man, this is what he's telling them as they get off the ark and now they're going to start, multiply, and spread through the earth. And he's saying, hey, here are the rules. Whoever sheds man's blood, by man his blood shall be shed, for in the image of God he made man. And this is kind of the beginning of a system of government saying that, hey, when somebody kills somebody, when somebody murders somebody, then the rest of us, we need to do something about that and could even take a life, capital punishment and all that. Yeah, it's in there. And so, yeah, it's that kind of a read. But what is it? Sanctity of human life. This is one of the many passages. This is why Christians believe in the sanctity of human life because all human life is made in God's image and God values human life above all other forms of life. And this is a huge thing in our culture today. This is a huge thing in our country this weekend. Because there's this whole Supreme Court, Senate, Judiciary, you know, all this stuff that's happening. What The main thing this is all about is human life. That's, that's why the stakes are so deep. That's, that's why both sides are just going all out here. It's all about Roe v. Wade. It's all about the sanctity of human life. That's why everybody's acting the way they're acting. It's huge. Life is precious. And we see God living out the sanctity of human life. I know that sound. Whoa, whoa, whoa. You just said they wiped, he wiped out everybody. Yeah. But then he lives out the sanctity of human life because even to allow God, human history to continue, he knew that he would suffer more than anyone. Because God is a God of truth and love. And we, we see this in people all the time. You know, we have people who are mainly truth people, they're kind of hard to be around. You know what I mean? They just, they just tell it the way they see it. Bam. And they're not so much about the love. It's all about truth. But they, they don't really experience any pain because they don't really care how anybody reacts. They're just laying it out there. This is true. This is the way it is. And then you got the other people that are more the love people, the lovers. Well, they're not about truth because they love and they value relationships so much that they don't express truth because truth then will impact the relationship in a negative way. So they just primarily love. Not so big on truth. They keep it in. They want to hurt anybody. They want to hurt relationships. Do you understand? God is truth and love. God loves us but is true about who we are and our nature and our rebellion and sin against him by the which we don't know the half of. And God loves us so much that he bears, he absorbs the penalty, suffering, pain, and death of that truth for us because he loves and calls us, by the way, as believers, to be lovers and truthers. And to not avoid the pain of truth. But to also emphasize the relationship of love. We can do both. It's just messy. And when you have both, there is always pain. You have one, no pain. You have both, always pain. And God lives through the pain. God allows human history to continue because he absorbs the suffering, the pain, even the death. 
that truth and love require. People say, I don't believe in a God who would allow suffering like that. I, I, there's, no, there's no good reason for, for God to allow pain and suffering. And what they're saying is, because there's no good reason for God to allow pain and suffering that I could think of, there cannot be one, which is logically inconsistent in the least, right? Oh, if I can't think of a reason, then God can't think of a reason. There can't be a reason. But I got to tell you, there is a reason for pain, suffering, and death because God pays the price for those things. Because God suffers for those things. God suffers to allow those things. God judged in the flood, but he also gave humanity a second chance. The flood's not only judgment, it's salvation through judgment. What does the flood point to? Well, it actually points to a greater judgment that's coming for all of us. That God is a righteous judge and he has told us what right and wrong is. And he does have a righteous standard that every single one of us have violated. And he's letting us know in truth and love that our violation of, of his standard, our sin, our wrongs, deserve punishment. But in his love, he made a way that Christ would come to earth, clothe himself in humanity, and ultimately give up his life for us, suffer pain and death on our behalf, absorb that, so that we could be forgiven through faith, through belief, simply by placing our trust in Christ and Christ alone for our salvation. That's the story of the flood, salvation through judgment. The ark in Noah's day, the cross in our day, to where God can love us with Complete truth, truth and love, nothing compromised, and God wins us back to him. He makes a way if we will respond and step through it by accepting Christ and Christ alone as our Savior forever. Let's stand together for prayer. God, we thank you that you would share with us the history of your, of your world, your story, how you've worked through the ages, through ancient times, through the generations, all leading to Jesus, and how you deal with us now. And through all that, looking forward for the Old Testament, us looking back to this time of deliverance once and for all through the seed of the woman the man God, Jesus Christ, who absorbed the righteous wrath for our sin in himself and offers us forgiveness if we would only take it. And Father, we pray that if anyone here is on the fence on that, they're not sure they would stand that, that maybe they would 
just open your heart. They would keep coming or they would, they'd come back to room one and talk to somebody and, and start getting answers for all that. But for the rest of us, Lord, who believe, God, we thank you that we can live knowing there is no judgment coming for us. There's no condemnation for those in Christ. And God, we thank you for that gift that we can live, we can follow you, even through trials, pain, suffering, even death, Lord, that we can live with joy knowing there's no judgment coming and a better world follows because you've made it all possible. And God, we thank you for that greatest gift. In Christ's name we pray, amen.